Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. A statement from the heart goes to a referendum, a new government and a record number of First Nations voices within federal parliament. Indigenous Affairs in 2022. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Amid a teal wave, an Albanese government swept to power and put a voice to parliament central to his agenda. Joining me to discuss the year that was 2022, a director of research at the Jumbana Institute, Professor Lyndon Coombs, and Indigenous Affairs editor at The Guardian Australia, Lorena Allen. Lorena, you were there at Gama when the Prime Minister first suggested a possible referendum question. What was the reaction and how has it progressed since then? There was a, a very positive reaction. I think people were anticipating some kind of announcement, but they were surprised, I think, at how far he was willing to go so soon after being elected. Um, this, this issue has been poison to the government, the previous government. They just refused to deal with it. They kicked the can down the road, as Noel Pearson said often. Um, So for Albo to turn up at Gama, where people have heard lots of promises for years and say, okay, this is the question, the proposed question. These are the the three things we want to change about the constitution. uh, And then the rest is up to you. So I think it was a Really, it was a surprising uh, step forward. It was a big, big leap forward for the Uluru Statement campaign. And Lyndon, what have your observations been on how this issue has been progressing, particularly since the announcement at Gama? Yeah, I was surprised as well that they they came out that hard. Sort of, as a former political advisor, I'm not sure um, if that would have been the advice. But um, you know, they could be seen to be using up a lot of political collateral pretty early and the referendum is a big gamble you know there are major implications for for running one there are major implications for not winning one and our record as people would know by now um, is that we don't generally agree to referenda so I I was surprised at that but I thought it was um, a bold move a positive move Uh, it sort of demonstrated I think their intent um, in the area, they moved, you know, really quickly on the um, the cashless card. Um, so I think they wanted to make a statement and probably build a bit of momentum. And the other thing with this is the ti- timing is everything. Um, when we were under previous campaigns, they just seemed to meander on. And the longer they went, the more that people were able to pick them apart and so while you can't have a, a too short a time frame, you do need to move pretty quick once the announcement's done. So maybe I was a bit too conservative as a political advisor. <laughs> Surely not. Um, Lorena, where do you think opposition to a yes vote will come from? Because obviously there's been a, a very big push for the yes vote, both from the federal government, um, the general community and um, from a lot of sectors within the First Nations community. Mm. I think that we've already seen where the, the opposition to the yes vote will come. Um, its loudest critics so far have been Aboriginal people like Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price who say they won't back it. It's interesting, though, because there's a, a split, if you like, in the conservative sort of commentariat. There are some conservative commentators who think this is fine and, and do support it, people like Chris Kenny writing in The Australian. So I think that the opposition to a yes vote hasn't quite coalesced into a firm campaign, but it's only a matter of time. And I do think that those people that I've mentioned will be at the forefront of that. And it will suit the coalition, the opposition, to have them at the forefront of that, to say, well, here are, to cast enough doubt in the minds of voters that here are some Aboriginal people who are opposed to this, um, so therefore you should vote no. And so Lyndon said earlier that, that referenda don't, do well in Australia. So that's the danger, really, is for for people to be swayed to vote no because they feel uncertain or that this doesn't have the support of every Aboriginal person. That's leaving aside the genuine concerns of uh, Aboriginal communities around the country who say that the voice isn't strong enough, uh, that they would rather have a treaty. Um, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of um, 
public debate to be had and a lot of public education to be done. And my worry is that we will end up uh, with a very ugly race-hate sort of environment to have this debate in, which would be the last thing that anybody really wants. Lyndon, Lorena mentioned the issue of treaty. What are your observations about the progress of the state-based treaty processes? And is that putting a bit of pressure on the federal campaign, if people are getting treaty talked about at the state level, perhaps it might lead to some impatience about waiting for it at the federal one. Yeah, it has. Um, And I've been encouraged um, by the state's approaches on on this, and it's probably in some ways alleviated a bit of the pressure um, on the federal government, which I think can be problematic down the road. But um, for the most part, to see some progress on a more localised level, I I think it's been important. Um, People have pointed out that the prioritising of the voice um, may come at at the the expense of treaty, but there's a lot of work going on with treaty. Uh, We saw the sort of budget allocations were again sort of pivoted towards the voice. And while that's important, I think we need to keep progressing and keep the pressure on with treaty and, you know, maybe having the attention elsewhere takes a bit of the heat out of uh, some of the debate because there's plenty of work to be done around treaty regardless of the state or territory. So that work can sort of go on while people are fighting over the voice maybe and, you know, other people's attention is elsewhere. Uh, Lorena, I mentioned earlier that we now have a record number of First Nations people in the federal parliament. As somebody whose um, everyday work is following national politics, have you seen that increase of presence and voice make a difference? It's a bit early to say. Um, I mean, yes and no. The thing about being an Indigenous MP or a senator is that you are still uh, operating in the party system. So it's great to have Indigenous people representing uh, constituents, but they're there for all of their constituents, not just mould, not just blackballs. So uh, I think that um, when people argue that that's uh, a better outcome than having a voice to Parliament, I would say we should have both and we need to have both. We need to have uh, Aboriginal people bringing their perspectives to party politics um, and changing, being influential over party policy on all sides of the house, um, but we also need a voice that represents people in the community who don't operate in that system, who want to who want to operate in different governance structures, things that they how the way they want to organise themselves. So, there it's been great to watch the early maiden speeches of the new members of parliament, and Senate estimates is going to be pretty spicy. It's already shaping up to be to be like that. The first. Senate estimates was pretty spiky, but you know I think I think that's a good thing. I have to say I did get a kick out of Senate estimates where Senator Munnandiri McCarthy was being grilled by Lydia Thorpe and Jacinta Price. It was just three Aboriginal women sort of not shaping up, but you know what I mean. You know, sort of having this kind of uh, robust conversation, and it was fantastic. Yes, I wasn't implying we shouldn't have the voice to Parliament, but of course it's been great to see that impact of. First Nations people on policy creation and um, uh, asking the questions that a lot of blackfellas would have wanted asked about um, everyday policy that's still affecting us. More broadly, Lyndon, how would you rate the Albanese government? As Lorena says, in some ways it's early days, but that's what we do when we commentate is (laughs) we make bold statements uh, in terms of its its, uh, early days. Yeah, I think the report card, from my perspective, is, you know, fairly solid. Like I was saying before, they they wanted to come out and make a statement in Indigenous Affairs. Um, You know, I think Penny Wong was... um, over in the Pacific Islands in the first or second week, sort of repairing some relationships there. Um, Similarly with China, domestically they just seem to have gone to work, is my take, Um, particularly in the the later days of the coalition government under Scott Morrison. It just seemed to be one uh, controversy after the other. It seemed as if there was not... A, a member of that coalition that wasn't tainted 
by some controversy, um, allegations of corruption. And it was, it's just been sort of nice <laughs> to not um, sort of be embroiled in um, a fresh stink every day. So it looks like it's, you know, a serious government. And obviously we need a bit more time to, to be able to assess how they're going. What have your observations been, Lorena? I think um, Linton's right there. It is, they are a serious government and it's really a relief to be able to, to not worry in the morning, oh, God, who's going to get, who's going to drop their foot in what today or what scandal will we be forced to report on today, whether it's, you know, sports rorts or robo-debt or Morrison's many ministries, you know. So it, it's just, it's nice for to think that the government is actually managing uh, their business. So uh, I think things like yeah, Claire O'Neill's been terrific dealing with the uh, cyber hacks that have that have happened. I mean, really unfortunate hacks to people's really important data. But I was very impressed with the way that she's uh, she's dealt with that. She seems to really know what she's talking about, which is also a tremendous relief in a politician, in a minister. Um, there have been some really promising early steps in in the education space. Uh, and as Lyndon said, they just got to work um, and it's just, it's so far so good. Looking at the year in review, obviously looking at the topics that impacted First Nations people the most, one can't go past the um, death in October of 15-year-old Cassius Turvey. Um, Lyndon, what was your reaction to the circumstances of his murder and what did you observe in the First Nations community? Um, yeah, this one really affected me. I know it affected a lot of people. Uh, I think there are a number of reasons for that, but um, it seems, unfortunately, that we've, well, I've sort of become accustomed to a bit of a cycle of these things that sort of starts out with uh, disbelief and anger, trying to understand how racism continues um, to impact and indeed take the lives of black people in this country. Um, the fact that he was such a, a sweet boy, um, you know, that that was innocent, you know, in innocent of what people thought he may have done, but innocent as a 15-year-old boy. And to have that, have him go through that was just, a, yeah, felt like a betrayal in, in so many ways. As an Aboriginal person, I think as an Australian... And to see, yeah, a young boy just have all of that potential snuffed out on his way home from school was just um, incredibly sad. Marina, what were your observations? I just, I just cried. I couldn't believe. It was like Lyndon. I thought, what? How? How do we come back from this? You know, how does his family recover from this? Like, what? What's wrong with this country that this this can happen to a child? going home from school, 15 years old, with his whole life ahead of him. And so when these things happen to our babies, I think we all grieve like we're family, you know, like that outpouring of grief that, that we all felt and shared with each other was really, it just makes me love our mob all the more because we just really um, come together at times like that. And it was really beautiful to see everyone sending messages of support to his mum and her families. Um, that was really beautiful. And, you know, people overseas were horrified. There were rallies and vigils in Los Angeles and New Zealand. You know, the BBC broadcast stories about whether Australia has a problem with this kind of vigilante behaviour. We can't say a lot about the man who did it, obviously, because he's been charged with murder and that will have to play out. But we all know deep down in our hearts what really happened and what really went on. And we can only um, all just keep doing what we do to improve race relations in this country and to find a way to make our kids feel safe. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berrant and my guests are Lorena Allam and Lyndon Coombs. Well, the passing of Queen Elizabeth II was a cause for deep mourning across the Commonwealth, but it also led to a range of other responses. Lyndon, what were your observations on the reaction to the death of the monarch amongst First Nations communities here in Australia? Yeah, it's sort of, I guess there are a number of things 
um, going on with that. Um, I think people wanted to sort of express their their anger at that the role of, of the monarchy um, that continued under Queen Elizabeth. Um, one of the things that I was sort of most critical about is that there was a real opportunity for some change, for some acknowledgement, for some truth, for some justice um, that involved that institution, but it was shut down um, at every turn under. Um, and for the Indigenous people that spoke out, there was a lot of anger, a lot of hurt um, that sort of came to the surface at that time and there was obviously a lot of criticism of that and, you know, repercussions, very real repercussions uh, for people like Caitlin Moran who had her employment affected, who was uh, fined um, an amount of money and there was no real understanding, I think, of where that was coming from and some some of the commentary around that, that it was the worst thing in rugby league was astounding and I'm a rugby league fan so I know how many bad things have gone on and, and that was pretty tame in the scheme of things. But there, there was an opportunity there, I think, for some acknowledgement and probably another opportunity lost. Lorena, what did you observe around the country and, and from other um, First Nations people around the world? And do you see this as a chance now for an Australian Republican movement? Uh, yes. And to answer the first bit first, I, I was just, I thought, uh-oh, here we go. Because um, people have genuine views about the monarchy and what it represents, what it did to our people. And but I was, even so, I was surprised by the, the kind of viciousness of the response to anyone who dared to speak in, uh, to, to, to offer a different perspective, to say, yeah, it's really sad this woman died, this, the Queen died. She was 96 years old. She died peacefully at an old age, which is a pretty good way to go when you think, when you compare her death to the one that poor Cassius Turvey had. So I think a bit of perspective is in order, um, but but the vilification, the attacks on anybody who spoke out and said, well, hang on, you know, not everybody experienced the Queen and the monarchy that way. This was devastating for our people. We're still living with the the effects of it. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty ugly. Um, people got death threats. Uh, you know, anyone who dared to, to even speak the mildest form of, of um, you know, historical... Um, yeah, to offer a different historical perspective, based on fact, I might add, um, were pretty shouted down, and that was so disappointing. Um, I think it does give impetus to a Republican movement. I mean, the Jamaicans are already ready to to leave the Commonwealth, um, and I do think Australia. There's more appetite now that she's gone in Australia for there to be a Republican push. But I think there that uh, that's all going to wait until. After the referendum, <clears throat> excuse me, after the referendum on The Voice. 22 started off, of course, with the storming of the Capitol in the United States. Lyndon, what are your thoughts now on the state of American democracy? It, it appears to be very fragile. Again, um, sort of followed it reasonably closely um, just because of, I guess, that drama and um, how dynamic the situation has been at times. And, and the sort of spectre that Donald Trump um, casts over that whole system, um, I, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, and to see, you know, the I keep thinking about the the child, my childhood memories of America, and sort of you know these movies like Rocky and where Russia was the enemy, uh, America was you know the home of the brave and the free, and a lot of that stuff has kind of turned around. You know, there are people sympathising with Putin um, who were who in the House, who were in the Senate. There are still people beholden to Donald Trump. There are still people who believe that the, the last election was stolen. There are people who are currently believe a couple of midterm elections were stolen. And so when... And that is all sort of on the Republican side. So when one side sort of refuses 
um, to play the game or to accept the basic rules of democracy, it's incredibly, incredibly dangerous. And you've seen uh, the attack on Nancy Pelosi, well, her husband, but on her house. It, it just appears to be an incredibly volatile um, place now and the Repub- Republicans are you know, currently looking for revenge with their, their slight majority in the House. So, yeah, I think we're in for a pretty hectic two years. Lorena, what are your thoughts? And now that Donald Trump has announced he's running for president in 2020, in 2024, um, how will this change things? Um, it'll be interesting to see how much support he's got because it's looking like, you know, his big funders, his big financial backers are stepping away. He's lost the... They, um, on I think Fox News had a list of potential Republican candidates for presidency and he wasn't on it. So I think it's pretty clear um, that he's not he's not the um, the favourite any longer. Um, that won't stop him, though, because, as we know, he's got an absolutely uh, Teflon-coated ego. Um, so it'll be interesting. Uh, I don't know how it's going to play out, but what he's really good at is sowing the seed of doubt into some really fertile minds. Um, and so... I think he could do more damage to the, the, the guardrails of American democracy than he's already done because just by being there, because there's a lot of people, there's millions of Americans who believe what he's got to say, um, which is disturbing in itself. But, you know, that's the, those people are, as Lyndon says, even though the Democrats had a, a great result in the midterms, there's this undercurrent of kind of, I don't know if you'd call it friendly fascism, but this undercurrent of conspiracy theory to American politics now that there wasn't before Trump, that means it could go anyway. Well, we've only just touched the surface of the year in review. We haven't got to Ukraine. We haven't got to the crazy revolving door of the UK prime ministership. Uh, So maybe as we look back on the year, what were your highs and lows, Lorena? You know, yeah, I was thinking about this and um, when I started to look back at the, the year in news, I got so depressed. I thought, oh, how does one choose the lowest? Because there were some pretty, pretty low lows. Um, but I think, you know, Australia's struggling with, we've got the catastrophic floods that are still going. I mean, it's like the, this slow moving flood disaster as it spreads down the Murray River is just astonishing to watch whole, whole towns inundated. So that's been terrible the cost of living crisis that people are in, you know, hearing people having to put their groceries on afterpay just shows us that the um, life is getting much tougher for all of us. Uh, in the US, the overturning of Roe versus Wade was a huge um, blow to progressives and to women, obviously the killing of Cassius Turvey. Um, and But some highs, though, um, the protests in Iran, uh, the Iranian women showing us how incredibly brave they are, um, ongoing protests in Iran to, to, to stand up to their government. Um, the Torres Strait uh, 8, who won uh, that uh, huge battle against Australia, saying that their human rights were being infringed by climate change and Australia wasn't doing enough to protect them, which was pretty awesome. And I would just want to pay tribute to two giants of our culture who passed this year, Uncle Jack Charles and Archie Roach, close to one another, actually. Um, so huge losses to both of, of both of those beautiful souls. Lyndon, highs and lows of 2022. Yeah, Lorena covered most of those, um, particularly Uncle Jack and Uncle Archie. Bittersweet in a way because of the thing we got to celebrate their their amazing lives, difficult but amazing lives, um, where they had come from but still gave so much back. Um, and I think I was saying the last time I was here um, after Archie had passed that um, so many you know, friends and family on Facebook had photos with him, similarly with um, Uncle Jack, and it just showed their connectedness, their giving back, those stores of knowledge that were lost, but they still left behind so much. So that was sort of the the big thing, I guess, for me on that level. And the other bittersweet one was Ash Barty. 
Ash winning the Australian Open and then breaking my heart by retiring. <laughs> I was looking forward to to staying up and watching her win Wimbledon and having a cry like I did the last time. But, um, you know, she, she's given it all away. Um, but I, I absolutely respect um, her decision and I'm sure she knows what she's doing. But, yeah, I felt like I'll be missing out on some late-night sports with Ash gone. I'm sure you'll find something else to keep you up and cheering all night. Um, My guests have been Director of Research at the Jumbana Institute, Professor Lyndon Coombs and Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian Australia, Lorena Allum. Thank you both so much for dropping by and giving us your insights and thoughts on the big news items for 2022. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, RN Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. It's been a year of ups and downs in Australian sport, but for many First Nations athletes, it's been a traumatic period with allegations of racism plaguing multiple sporting codes. Ben Abitangelo has been following the situation closely and written extensively on the issue. You'll hear from him shortly, but right now, some music from Dan Sultan. Song in June and I danced all night I looked at you as the only one Didn't know it could come Speaking out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Earlier this year, allegations of racism levelled at the Hawthorne Football Club rocked the entire sporting code. The alleged incidents forced the AFL to commit to a broader industry-wide approach to dealing with racism. Netball Australia was also embroiled in its own scandal after Indigenous team member Danelle Wallam spoke out against a controversial partnership with mining giant Hancock Prospecting. 
NRLW player Caitlin Moran also faced backlash for her comments following the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Ben Abbott-Tangelo has written extensively on the issue and he spoke with producer and journalist Jay McAllister. Yeah, I think this country just has a, a, a grand illiteracy of what race is, how it functions, how it surfaces, um, you know, how it is fueled. So I think there's a large population of the country that just is illiterate when it comes to what racism is. And then there's a larger population, I think, that is just willfully ignorant. So I think we kind of, we narrow our scope on sport to just what happens on the playing field. I think, you know, if we want to stick out or keep our gaze on the AFL, I mean, there's a the lion's share of draftees come out of the private school system, right? Um, which heavily favours, you know, kids from rich upbringings and that have you know, wealthy families and and good relationships and good networks and that live within a proximity um, of, you know, those private school systems. You look at um, the coaching structures and the staffing models um, in underage football. They're very Eurocentric or very white. And then you look at, I think, also within the AFL, I think blackfellas, you know, as we should because we're so brilliant at the game and we work so hard, I think we, you know, proportionately we have a higher number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players playing the game. But when it comes to coaching ranks, administration, every other facet of the game, you know, it's all very linear. So, you know, I think the AFL has got a long history of protecting the status quo and particularly over the last couple of decades in the Demetriou and Gillan McLaughlin era, it has very much been about, you know, protecting the commercial imperatives um, of the game and ensuring that those rivers of gold continue to flow. So because of that, at every inflection point, the AFL's done everything that it can to see these, these instances of real endemic and systemic racism as just a problem to minimise and then just a problem to minimise but not solve. So it's sort of no wonder that, you know, <laughs> I think it feels like, Every month there's something new that pops up, but every year there really is something hearty and meaty and grotesque, you know, that comes to the limelight or that comes to the front and the centre. Um, and then an inquiry is launched that has no findings um, and hence this, you know, no room for racism merry-go-round continues to spin. The AFL's announced an industry-wide approach to dealing with racism. Do you think um, this is a step in the right direction? The AFL got dragged into saying that, and initially they rejected the claims of conducting that. The, the, the terms of reference that they've created for the Hawthorne investigation <clears throat> are so narrow, so offensive, so harmful, um, that as essentially like, Many of the other investigations, whether that be from um, the West Coast Eagles drug saga in the early 2000s <clears throat> to the Essendon drug saga to the Melbourne Demons, um, you know, reports of match fixing and tanking under Dean Bailey. There's um, the investigations into the Talia brothers that were sharing sensitive information on uh, for a semi-final match. There's, you know, the Adelaide Crows. Like every single inquiry that the AFL has launched, they've been the investigator, the judge, the jury, the executioner. So sticking on Hawthorne, the initial terms of reference um, and the approach that they took is very much in sync uh, with previous approaches to those other investigations that I've mentioned. So they initially said no to um, a league-wide review and, again, that is independent, that is away from the AFL as an industry. In fact, in the early 2000s, one of the recommendations that came from a judge that looked into the West Coast Eagles um, <clears throat> uh, drug scandal, one of his recommendations was that the AFL needs to establish um, equivalent to an integrity commission, you know, that the federal politics are trying to instigate. And they've never done that. So every investigation thus far has come out of the CEO's office. Um, and I think in this instance where they've now said, that they are going to initiate a league-wide review. Um, I think that's come from the amount of pressure that has been placed on them. And I think it is a reactionary thing to kind of quell the heat that is being focused on them rather than a good faith commitment that's coming from a place of, oh, no, no, we really want to and really need to solve this endemic problem that we have. 
What did you make of how the um, Collingwood Football Club dealt with um, similar allegations? I think, um, again, you know, these clubs get skull-dragged into a position. Never do these allegations arise and the club instantly positions itself to get to the bottom of what's happened and ensure that there is accountability, justice, redress, recourse, you name it. It takes years. It takes a lot of trauma. It takes a lot of pain. It takes a lot of lives being ruined, you know, for clubs to eventually, you know, take these things seriously. So with Collingwood, you know, they got skull dragged to the review. I think it did eventually. So so I marry that with also the harmony of like it took courage to go within. But then on the other side of it, there was also them holding on to the report and then it got leaked. You know, it wasn't, it didn't come out um, as they promised it would. So I, I have mixed emotions about it. And then I also like to take a medium to long-term view. I, I wrote a piece earlier this year that kind of brought into focus Collingwood's season. And I wasn't actually as surprised as maybe some of the other pundits and commentary that they had, you know, they've probably exceeded everyone's expectations. But the thing that was missing was the fact that they really went within through the Do Better report and that that report cultivated the space for renewal, that cultivated the space for alignment, it cultivated the space for, you know, for a club to be in sync and to dream and to imagine and to be creative um, and caring. So I, I think they they laid down a blueprint of what's possible and they destroyed the mantra of go woke, go broke. But what's been lacking, I think, is other clubs just haven't had the courage to, I think, follow them, even though that the blueprint, um, you know, was placed in front of them. Um, often when uh, racism is called out, there's sort of this visceral sort of pushback um, against its validity. Um, why do you think that is? Yeah, the the weaponization of whose experience is objective and truthful versus whose is subjective or fantasy is um is really gross and it's it's always on display in these moments where allegations are brought to the surface. Like it takes so much courage to actually voice your um to voice your truth. Like when you have been when you've bore the brunt of other people's violence and their racism, like there isn't really much of a win in bringing those allegations to the surface, right? Because what happens instantly is that people minimise the experience. They interrogate it. um, They look inwards at you. They ostracise you. um, Never, ever do. And and then often you kind of, you're silenced, you're minimised, and then you're thrown off to the scrap heap, whether that's instantly or um, over over a period of time. So, I think, um, you know, that's that's the other thing that I just don't know, like, or there is a disconnect for me. Like, there's just, there's no win in re-traumatizing yourself. Like, there really isn't much gain. And I think the people that continue to or, or have had the courage to stand up and tell their truth, it's also coming from a place of love. Like, we just want this place to be better. You know, we're born out of these lands, these rivers, these waterways, these skies. We've been here forever and a day. Like there's no one else that loves this place more than we do. So I think when those claims and those allegations and those truths are put forward, um, you know, it is initially coming from a place of love. It comes from a place of people um, wanting accountability and transformation. And, you know, it'd be nice every once in a while or moving forward, if, you know, people didn't try and create distance between themselves and the allegations, but rather lean in, you know, and, and acquaint themselves with the truth. Because, as I said, we're kind of just after transformation and harmony. Um, um, I'd be interested to um, also get your thoughts on the um, fallout from Caitlin Moran's comments um, following the passing of the Queen. I thought the, the fallout of that was... Um, was shocking. And again, in those moments where of tension, you know, Caitlin was let down by everyone. She wasn't, you know, the, the, the conservative commentary and, and punditries expected, but the way that I thought the players association, the league, you know, the club, everyone around her kind of just hung her out to dry was uh, shameful. And 
again, it's either the illiteracy, the the immaturity, or just the love of smashing and and demonizing black women. I'm not sure which one it is, probably a combination of all. But I think what I loved is within the destruction of demonizing Caitlin was the solidarity and the love that black fellas across the country showed her. And, you know, I think that's maybe something else that's, you know, is pervasive but beautiful is that in these moments where we're being hung out to dry, um, the, the constant threat is that, our, you know, the community from across the country always bands together to ensure that, you know, those people who are bearing the brunt of things know that they've got, you know, our love and support. So that was also, you know, maybe something to take from that that whole facade or charade or charade. I don't know what the language is. And um, Netball Australia also had um, some controversy as well with sponsorships. Uh, what was your, I guess, take on that whole situation? What what's I mean again in all of this? What's amazing is, or with the Danelle Wallam and the Netball Australia piece, is how like if your game is reliant on if if you're if you need to finance your game at the expense of peoples across the continent, um, or if you need the game to grow at the expense of pushing people down, um, you've got some serious flaws in your economic model, and I think what. Maybe uh, looking into Donnell's, Donnell Wallam's case and many of the others, it just, I think there's an opportunity maybe to focus in on how these organisations are run and the revolving doors that, that are taking place within boardrooms and at an executive level where we've got people from the same institutions, um, you know, the same banks, the same big extractive corporations that, um, you know, are filling positions of governance and, you know, still impl- implementing this really grotesque, like lack of imagination of how to fuel a game and make it viable and sustainable. You know, Danelle Wallam, I think, stood up, paved the way, and then has enabled, I think, you know, another, you know, another sponsor to come on board. And I guess, uh, lastly, um, what gives you hope moving forward? I don't know if I subscribe to hope anymore after reading. Professor Chelsea Watergo's book, Another Day in the Colony, and interrogating what hope is, what it does. And I really feel like it hope continues to lull us into a false sense of security. And so I think what inspires me or fuels me to or motivates me to act and to be vigilant and to hold the line, I think is maybe a couple of things. I think it's a knowing that we can and should be better, um, that, you know, we have come from these lands, these waters, these skies, that we belong to them and that if there is, you know, and that we're just the number one shareholders of, you know, a, a prosperous future of balance. So I think it there's, there's a combination of that. And then also I just think maybe it's the the heart and the fire and you know, of of those that are here, but also those that have come before us. Like we've kind of, we've held the line for so long, you know, that there's, you know, giving up or staying silent or um, ceding space is just no longer an option. So it's probably a combination of things, but I've, I like that we're starting to shift the discourse away from, you know, what's keeping us going, you know, what's our theories of change? How are we going to be catalysts and agents for change rather than, which is more active versus, you know what are we what what gives us hope which i think is more passive and um you know and creates space between ourselves and and doing the work if that makes sense that's ben abitangelo speaking with producer and journalist jay mcallister It's been a tradition on Speaking Out to have Auntie Pat Turner give her year in review. Unfortunately, she's been unwell, but luckily she did speak earlier in the year at an event hosted by the Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce. Education, housing, health justice reform, heritage protection and constitutional recognition remain key areas of concern for First Nations people. As you heard earlier, this federal parliament is our most diverse on record, but how much progress should we expect to be made on First Nations issues? A formidable force within Indigenous affairs, Auntie Pat Turner knows all too well the challenges that lie within the public service. For almost half a century, she's been at the forefront of community efforts to address health and welfare inequalities faced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Let's hear from Auntie Pat now. 
Well, I've worked in Aboriginal affairs all my life, so my expectation of the new Labor government is the same as I've held for all governments that have come before and will continue to hold for future governments. My expectations come from my position as lead convener of the Coalition of Peak Organisations and CEO of NACHO. But importantly, they also come from me being an Aboriginal person. Firstly, what I expect is that the government of the day works to protect and support our rights and interests as First Nations peoples and with distinct cultures, languages and connections to land and waters. So I'm hoping that the government is going to be able to work with us in shared decision-making partnership, as has been agreed already, in, um, under the auspices of the national agreement to close the gap, which has been signed by the Prime Minister, the Premiers, the Chief Ministers, the President of the Local Government Association, so the old COAG, uh, now National Cabinet, and myself as the elected leader, lead convener of the Coalition of Peak Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled organisations. We have over 70 of our organisations and the important principles that every government now has to, in my opinion, do, including the Albanese government, is put into practice the four microeconomic changes that are contained in the National Agreement on Closing the Gap. And they are, and everybody should be doing this, whether you're in the corporate sector or whether you're in the NGO sector or whether you're in the government sector. Shared decision-making in partnerships with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So I say now to all of our people, negotiate. Don't let them come and consult you and then go back and do what they want to do. Negotiate and put your own priorities on the table. The second one is to build and strengthen the Aboriginal community-controlled sector to deliver services to close the gap because we do it much better than anyone else. We do it more efficiently, more effectively, and we get a better return on our investment and we employ more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the communities where they live. The third one, the third priority reform, is to transform all mainstream organisations so that they have a culturally safe and respectful relationship in their service delivery and their contact with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So you think about that with the police, the hospitals, the justice systems, out-of-home care, you name it. So I had good meetings with uh, uh, Mr Albanese and with Linda, Minister Burney, and they're very supportive and we will work in close partnership. We have the right and we must insist on choosing our own representatives. So, you know, this business of hand-picked um, advisors who will just say yes, minister, no, minister, or yes, sir, no, sir, those days are over. It's up to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to decide who they want to represent them. That's what we mean. There was also the Reconciliation Council of Australia and, um, and the Social Justice Commissioner from the Human Rights Commission. So there were three reports uh, that were given and each had really important elements you know, now we didn't step away from the issues related to closing the gap in recognition rights and reform, but it was about the structural reforms which we're still fighting for, like a voice to parliament, like close the gap and give us self-determination and the right to run our own affairs and the resources to run our own affairs because what you've done hasn't worked. And we know that we can do it. So the reports thing, and I'll never forgive Paul Keating for that, you know, and that was in the lead-up to 2000, you know, and I had worked for 10 years on the Constitutional Centenary Foundation, apart from the 18 months 
that I spent at Georgetown. And, we, you know, so I understand all this constitutional business. Don't worry about that. We all understand it because we've had to deal with it uh, for all our lives. The thing is that he had opportunity with the, you know, 2000 to really do something innovative. And then I remember a journalist who was a renowned journalist from the age rang me when I'd retired and gone back to Alice Springs once or twice <laughs> and said, hey, Pat, Paul Keating's supporting a treaty. I said, well, pity you didn't do that when he got the social justice mm. package uh, reports. And, uh, you know, but when they come to reflect on it afterwards, they seem to see the sense of these things. What he couldn't handle was the politics of the Native Title Act, which was dirty, nasty, right? But we stood our ground and we led the way, you know, with the Mining Industry Council and all the other parties. The point is, Keating missed the opportunity. So Liberal and Labor don't make no difference to us, right? What they've got to do is they've got to deliver, full stop. So ultimately, the Commonwealth, you know, can pass legislation that overrides the states and territories. We're trying not to do that. We're trying to make sure that we can bring everybody along at the same time so that we can get over this, um, you know, conflict between Commonwealth and states. And because we're sick and tired of all the grey areas and the buck passing between Commonwealth and states. You know, they need to grow up and they need to cough up in terms of fulfilling their responsibilities. Look at Western Australia. Now, let me just point out Western Australia and all you mob in the mining industry here. You've all made billions and billions and billions of dollars off of Aboriginal land. And Western Australia, one of the few governments in this country during the pandemic that came out with a surplus in its budget, you know, in the green, everyone else is bleeding. Money's coming from Aboriginal mining royalties, or mining royalties, most of which is extracted from Aboriginal land. And Aboriginal people in WA live in the most appalling conditions today. And they do not have the support of the Western Australian government. Now, I'm sick and tired. I mean, I'm 70 in a couple of months. So I'm not going to sit here and be nice about all these governments who've neglected our people for decades. I've been fighting since I was in my 20s, 50 years. You know, it's a long time. I'm glad that these young ones are coming up and that they can take the mantle up. But fair income, you look at the surplus in the Western Australian government and you look at the living conditions of our people in Western Australia, they need to be ashamed of themselves and dip into that surplus and spend it at the community level according to community priorities. Thank you. That's Arnie Pat Turner having the last word. She was speaking earlier this year at an event hosted by the Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce. And that's the show for this week and for this year. Join us over our summer break when we play some of our favourite shows of the year. Next week, we revisit highlights from the All About Women Festival hosted by the Sydney Opera House. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.